0: So saying that, I, I do have some unfortunate news to share with you today, church, uh, due to the cost of inflation uh, and uh, what soft drinks cost these days. And some of y'all drink Dr. Who drinks Dr. Pepper in our church? Who goes to the vending machine and buys Dr. Pepper? Who, who buys Coke in our vending machine? Oh, there's a handful of y'all. You know, I can save the church some money if I put RC Cola in our vending machine. Did y'all know that, right? <laughs> and Dr. Thunder, but how disappointed would you be, and if I would have had the foresight of this illustration two weeks ago, I would have had Derek slowly begin to put some Dr. Thunder and RC Cola intermixed with all the others, but would y'all be disappointed if you thought you were going to get Dr. Pepper and Dr. Thunder comes out? I would. I would march down to the church office and ask for a refund. You better believe it. Like, I paid for Dr. Pepper, and yet you're giving me this. I should have to pay a quarter for this, not 50 cents. It's the same thing with RC Cola. And they're not bad. I mean, they're drinkable if you needed to drink them. But there's something about drinking the real thing, isn't it? When you want Dr. Pepper, you want a Dr. Pepper. When you want a Coke, you want a Coke. You don't want RC Cola. If you wanted RC Cola, you would have bought RC Cola. And you know, when I... I think about our passage today. Paul is really getting at this idea of those who pretend, religious people. That we all can tell the difference between the real thing and someone who's just imposing, an imposter. They may have some of the same ingredients within them, but, but you can tell the difference, can't you? And I think that's what Paul is really getting at in our passage today. Who is the real deal? And what does it mean to be the real deal? What does it mean for those who are simply pretending? They're putting on the mask, they're saying all the right things, they're doing all the right things. You see, church, when the gospel takes root in your life, it manifests itself in outwardly obedience to Jesus. When the gospel takes root in your life, it manifests itself in outwardly obedience to Jesus. But I think so often we can get that confused. You see, the gospel has to take root in your life. Sometimes, though, we start with the behavior part of things. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard it, and I'm sure you've heard it too, but... I need to get my life together before I do X, Y, and Z. Before I can serve, before Jesus will love me, i got to kind of get this part of my life cleaned up. But you see, that isn't how the gospel works. If we are left to our own devices to, to get our own life and our affairs in order, it's never going to work out. And in fact, we will find ourselves further and further away from the heart of the gospel. But when the gospel takes root in your life, through the power of the Spirit, it brings about obedience. Now, not perfectly. We're not going to be perfected in this life, but we see this outward expression of obedience to Jesus because there's been an inner transformation. And that's what Paul is getting at today. You know, last week we looked at a really tough passage. We we looked at Romans one twenty six through thirty two, and we did have some issues on our recording, but those have been resolved. So if you want to go back and, and listen to what uh, we I preached on last week, uh, you can certainly do that. It kind of wouldn't allow people to watch it last week during the service for various reasons, but those have been fixed. If you don't want to go, if you don't on Facebook, you can go online and watch it at our website. But we talked about really, really Romans one is about how Gentiles, pagans, have failed to recognize and to fail to worship God. And thus in return they have created idols and worship the creature rather than the creator. But at the really I think the, the summary of Romans one is that we have heart problems, that we we turn everything into idols if we don't pursue Jesus first and foremost that our life will be filled with these things. And after talking about gentiles and pagans and Romans 1:18 through 32 Paul then now turns his attention in chapter 2 to Jews. And we don't know this until verse 17 of chapter 2. And while we can't look at All the verses today in in Romans chapter 2, we would be here far too long. But a summary of Romans 1 through 16, we see this idea that God is patient and God is kind, but that people resist God's love. But then we're told in verse 11 that God shows no partiality and that Jews, when they commit sins, God will judge them as well. And that's what really Paul is getting at. If there's kind of one big idea behind chapter 2, it's that, that Paul has in mind that he's leveling the playing field between Gentiles and Jews. He's already said and explained where Gentiles were, and now he's talking about and directing his conversation towards Jews. Imagine those house churches, these five house churches filled with Jews and Gentiles, and yeah, Phoebe, they reading this letter to them. Chapter 2 begins very differently, directing their attention to, to Jews who think that because of their special status towards God and with God, that they won't be judged in the same way. And at that point, they won't be able to claim their Jewish identity for protection. They can't just claim the law and say, because we have the law, we will be saved, or because we've been circumcised, we will be saved. In verses 1 through 16, we see a leveling of the playing field, and then Paul anticipating. If you'll turn with me in your text now, church, to verse 17. Paul is anticipating a response, but Paul... We do have the law. We are different than the Gentiles. We have been circumcised. And Paul begins to anticipate their response. And this is what he begins to say. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... So right there in verses 17 through 18, Paul marks off five things. He says, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, which boasting at this point is not a a, a thing that we would think about boasting, but boasting is that we, we, we rely on God in all that we do. You trust in his will and you approve of what is excellent. You know the moral law of what you are to do. So Paul is describing really the blessings of what it means to be a part of the house of Israel, what it means to be Jewish, and to find their identity in the covenant, because that's what Jews did. They were set apart. And then we continue to read in verses 19 through 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So now Paul says that, yes, you, you have this identity that you have in Christ, or in the law, in the house of Israel. And then he lists these four things that, that Israel was supposed to be to the nations. They were to be a guide to the blind. I mean, Recount the promise to Abraham, a blessing to all nations a light to those who are in darkness. They weren't to live as the Canaanites or the Philistines did, but they were to be set apart. An instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, while Gentiles at that point had this revelation, general revelation, of, that they could look around and acknowledge that there was a creator... That Israel had been given the law, the embodiment of who God was. They had a special knowledge of what God was doing. This knowledge and truth in the law. They weren't like the Gentiles. They knew right from wrong. God had taken them and set them aside to be a light to the nations. To be that voice of truth in the world. Then verses 21 through 24 Paul asked these four rhetorical questions. That you are these things, but you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, Paul isn't saying that every Jew does all of these things, that every Jew committed adultery or that every Jew stole. But he has this rhetorical device of going on that if you've broken any of the laws, you've broken all of them. It's just like breaking a window. One time playing baseball with my brothers, we broke a window. We didn't want to tell our parents because when you break a window, can you put it back together? You can't. It's there for the world to see what you have done. And Paul is saying, because you've broken one, you have broken all of them. And because of that, because you have broken just one of these laws, you are blaspheming the name of God. I mean, why was it that Israel constantly was conquered by foreign powers? Because it was their collective disobedience. Yes, there were some who were righteous there, but as a whole, they were disobedient. They weren't a light to the nations. They weren't all these things. And because of that, because of that, Gentiles doubted who God was. But you see, God had a plan. He had a plan. Even though that Israel had forsaken their vocation in the world. They'd been tasked with something very specific. And the world mocked them for it. God didn't give up. You see, I think that's one of the beauties of the church. You see, Jesus came and he inaugurated the kingdom. You go back to read the Gospel of Mark. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came to usher in God's kingdom. Did he not, church? It's what he preaches about, the kingdom. And out of that, then we see the birth of the church. After his death and resurrection, we see the church begin to be instituted. The Spirit falls upon those in Acts, and and this movement begins where the people of God now carry forth God's mission in the world. They continue what Jesus has done. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, Luke and Acts are part of the same, they're they're, they're pretty much one book together. But what does Acts do? If you go through Acts, I mean, it's pretty much a retelling of the disciples doing all the things that Jesus did. But you see the church doing it. It's a beautiful thing that you see. And if Israel at one point had failed in its vocation to the world, I often think, how does the church fail in its vocation to the world? What is the purpose? What is the calling of the church? You see, the the church is the instrument that God has chosen to use right now here on this earth to fulfill his mission. That God's mission in the world is to redeem all people, to bring all people into a relationship with him. And God has chosen to use the church. And it's the people who make up the church that continue this, that, that moves in a powerful way so that the world knows that something is different and set apart. There's a story by Leslie Newbegin, a, a missiologist. He was a missionary to India for 40 years. And he told a story that when he would study scripture with believers in India, there would be Muslims and Hindus that would come and observe and and listen and watch what they were doing. And as they were sitting on the floor, he, he thought to himself that the only way that these Muslims and Hindus will believe the gospel, it isn't because the Bible is God's word, we believe that, but those Muslims didn't believe that. Hindus don't believe that. They don't even grant you that thought. But he came to Understand that the only way that they could see that there was truth in the power of the gospel and the power of God's word is that if it manifests itself in the life of those believers, particularly in India where there were caste, you had certain layers of where you could advance to and then you hit a ceiling and you couldn't go to the next class. If you were in this socioeconomic class or you were this race and this is where you were, And everyone had a place on the pecking order. But beginning in the gospel, it changes that. That it's no longer about what family you were born into or how much money you have, but that we're all one in Christ Jesus. And that we see there that there has to be this embodiment of the gospel, the vocation of the church. And for Israel... They tried to claim that they had the law, but they couldn't keep the law themselves. The vocation to the world had, had failed. But as we've seen, as we saw in Romans 9-11, through that God was continuing to work. He, there was a winnowing, a, a refining of Israel that would culminate in Christ Jesus. And that possessing the law for those Jews who are listening does not prevent them from God's judgment. Just as being a church member does not save you. It's important. It's part of what we want to encourage people to do, but if someone's claiming that Grandpa or that I'm Baptist, and that saves me, then you've misunderstood the gospel. You're not truly saved. And that's what Paul is getting at. There were some of those Jews who would say, I have the law, but then that's the first line of argument that they would have. But Paul says it's not just the law, but it's also circumcision. You see, circumcision, it marked out Jewish privilege as a member of God's chosen people. It was the physical act that demonstrated one's participation in God's covenant. And what's interesting, Paul doesn't completely abolish circumcision or the law at this point. He doesn't say they're worthless and to do away with them. But what he does is he reframes them. And in Paul's day and age, for a Jew not to be circumcised, or even a Gentile who wanted to be a proselyte, who converted to Judaism, they had to be circumcised. There was even the thought that if you were circumcised, it would save you. And to not be circumcised means that you are eternally damned. So when Paul says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What Paul has in mind, it's not that Jews could keep the law, because many of them would recognize they can't keep it perfectly. Jews understood that. They understood they didn't keep the, the law perfectly. But Paul expands that and says that if you keep every letter of the law, Jews knew they couldn't do that. To break even the smallest thing is to sin. I mean, we see in Matthew chapter 5, what does Jesus do? He constantly reframes the argument. It isn't just committing murder that's wrong, but what? Having anger towards your brother. It's not just committing adultery that's wrong, but lusting in your heart. He expands it. And at this point, there's no one who can keep every. Letter of the law. Then in verses 26 through 27, Paul creates kind of a straw man argument, a hypothetical to illustrate that Jews don't have this unfettered access to God's grace based upon the law or their circumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, the law, and circumcision, but break the law. He then goes on to say in verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, By the Spirit and not by the letter. Paul is pulling from the different prophecies in the Old Testament. That we can go back and we can see that that God would do a new thing. That he would write his law on their hearts. I mean, again, Deuteronomy 28 and 29 speak to this. I mean, you can go to, to the prophets that foreshadow this circumcision of the heart. And he says there in verse 29 that in circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And that word there is capitalized because what Paul is really getting at that the way one now is circumcised is by the Spirit through the gospel, what Christ has done and not by the letter, that no longer the law can save you. And so for Jews to have to understand, to Would have this privilege. Well I'm Jewish. I've been circumcised. I have the law. I'm part of the elect. I follow God's law. I understand this. I have all of these things. Isn't that enough? And Paul says no. That one has to be circumcised. Of the heart. And it's done through the spirit. Through this new thing that Christ has done. Of accepting him as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. It's no longer these things that you held on to that will save you. They understood, Paul understood, that the only way now to be saved is through Jesus alone, and that everyone, Jew and Gentile, would be judged accordingly and how they responded in faith to Jesus. They were all now in the same boat, and what Paul will do, what we will see in chapter 3, where he says it a little bit clearer, I think, than what he does in chapter 2. But all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul is leading up to, and he's helping them understand that it's not your Jewishness that saves you. You know, sometimes... We can read these stories and think, man, how did they get it wrong so easily? But I think for us, we can easily find ourselves in the same situation. You see, I think we can sometimes love Christianity more than the gospel. You can love Christianity more than the gospel. And if you love Christianity more than the gospel... You are worshiping an idol and not the God of heaven. Tim Keller put it this way, that it's possible to trust Christ, to trust in Christianity more than Christ. What does he mean by that? It means that you like the effects of Christendom and all that it brings. Where people act somewhat good. Maybe they vote accordingly to the way you vote. Everyone's nice, and they kind of, there's this general ethos of what Christianity, and it's prevalent. Christendom had a major effect over Western Europe for almost a thousand years, and even here in America. We can hold on to these values of freedom and, and other things that we all look to, and we can gather around and agree upon as Americans. But sometimes I think we can like the idea of Christianity more than we do what the gospel calls us to do. Because the gospel calls us to give things up. To die to ourselves. To not have our own desires. And it, it, it's hard for me, church. It makes me uncomfortable at times. I mean, there's times when you think about living in different cultures. Maybe not here in Eastland. But imagine going and living in a place like Seattle. Would you listen to the God's call upon your life to go do that? You might be thinking, it's a little bit crazy up there. It is is that. I'll, I'll I'll grant you that. But I think about how the gospel has made its way throughout the world and over time. Because if we love Christianity more than the gospel, we may not want to do those things. Even here locally in Eastland, there are places and people who don't know Jesus. What does it look like for us to trust more in Christ and not Christianity? Because really what we're talking about is this idea of the real deal and maybe something that's not the real deal. I think sometimes we all can live our faith like that. It's a lot of the same ingredients. It tastes pretty close. Probably even saved. Dad, you'll go to heaven? Yeah, absolutely. But the gospel, when it takes root in your life, it begins to do something. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for the world to understand. But you see, the gospel is about receiving from God and not getting from God. The gospel is about being compassionate, and humble, being shaped by God, and not being judgmental and arrogant and prideful. As one pastor put it, the problem with religiosity is kind of what I'm defining and describing here, that we love Christianity more than the gospel, is that religious people love concepts of truth about God, but are never changed by them a powerful statement, isn't it? Religious people love concepts of truth about God, but are never changed by those very concepts. They don't take root in your life. And when I read that, how convicted I was that it's so easy to live in my mind, to think I'm doing all the things. But the longest journey that we all have to make is from the head to the heart, isn't it? To what we know to be true, but then to experience it at a gut level. Where our entire self is transformed. But you see, when the gospel does take root. When it truly takes root in your life. And you invite the spirit to come in, to transform you, and to change you. Amazing things happen. Things that you would never thought of or expect. You see, it manifests itself in love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. It manifests itself in an obedience to seek reconciliation. It manifests itself in a, a dying to yourself because it's what Christ calls us to do. A laying down of our life. A giving up of our life for the sake of others. The vocation of the church is being willing to do whatever it takes to live out that calling, to take the gospel to our neighbors, to our community and the world beyond. It's a beautiful thing when the gospel takes root. And sometimes when it has taken root, we forget to nurture it. Sometimes we're not planted by those streams of water that give it life. We fail to be in community with others. We aren't committed to God's word and shaping our life. And so what happens, those roots can become dry. But thanks be to God for his grace. And that's simply what we have to do today and every day is to receive what God has already done for us. So if the gospel has taken root in your life, and perhaps at this point you don't have those living streams giving life to it, then I would encourage you today to pray for the Spirit to revive your heart and your life. To begin to take root, to transform, to nourish you. To draw closer to God this day. To trust in Him and His goodness and what He longs for you. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, then just as Paul said to those who are Jews, to those who are Gentiles, that the way you enter into this relationship is through faith. It's interesting, Paul doesn't talk about faith in chapter 2, but Romans 1 through 4 is kind of a section together, and he just told us in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. And it culminates in chapter 4 that Abraham was saved by faith. It's by faith that we receive what God has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves. Let us pray, church. Father, we come before you. We thank you. We thank you for what you have done through Christ Jesus. God, I pray in this time for everyone here today that whatever struggles they may be facing, what if they're walking through dry deserts in this time, Father, I pray, Lord, that you will fill them with your Spirit. That you will give them your living water that they may taste and experience that your yoke fits well. I pray, Lord, that you encourage them, that you help them experience your grace and your mercy anew this day. God, we love you and we trust you in all that you've done for us. And it's in your son's name that we pray. going to be down here at the